Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Excuse me, Mrs. Beethoven. Call me Janet. I'm the new director of catering for Julius Mainland Food Emporium. I understand you have specific needs. Right. As you know, I'm doing most of the composing these days because, not to put too fine a point on it, my husband's elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. I'm not sure I understand. His buttons don't light up when you touch them, you know? I'm still confused. So is he. main thing is, I need to eat certain foods to write music. Those things with the chocolate squiggles, I need more of those. This is the kind of idea I get when I'm eating those. That's really uplifting. You bet your Austrian hiney it is, but this stuff? What is that, fish paste or something? Well, sort of. It's a traditional dish. That's Never mind, it doesn't matter. Do you know what kind of music I wrote after eating that crap? Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. Wow. That is just horrible. I know. In 200 years, it's not going to sound any better. So just to review, bring me food that makes me write sublime music. Don't bring me food that makes me compose garbage. Comprende? I just never knew it worked that way. Well, it does. The whole key to composing is to eat the right food and stay away from prostitutes. I wish I'd warned you-know-who about that a little earlier in our marriage. Anyway, today we're focusing totally on the food part of that equation. And now he was Peter Frampton's private chef, Colin McEnroe. That's right. Once again, we visit the interesting world of Janet Beethoven, the otherwise undiscovered wife of Ludwig von Beethoven. Anyway, uh, enough about Janet. We're here to talk about gastromusicology. And so what we're going to do is talk um, initially, uh, and I should say our guest here for the first two segments is Ira Brous, an associate professor of music history at the Hart School, and he's the author of Classical Cooks, uh, subtitled A Gastro History of Western Music. Um, and, uh, and we're going to talk first about something that you probably do, which is to occasionally use the language of food to talk about music. And the sensations and the feelings of food uh, are, are probably closely paired to your perception of music. So we'll talk a little bit about that in the beginning and also about how composers themselves did the same thing, right? They, well, you'll see. And then uh, in the second segment, we're going to talk about the whole notion that maybe actually even changes in their diet, what they actually ate. A lot of these guys had, and it's pretty much guys, as we know, but a lot of these guys had uh, pretty fixed diet ideas or pretty elaborate or eccentric or extreme ideas about uh, what and how much to eat and drink, as you might imagine. Anyway, uh, joining us now, as I say, is Ira Brouse. So uh, let's just plunge right into it. This is the way you want to set this up beyond what I did. Um, you know, maybe the best thing to do is give a good example, and we could even give an example within one family uh, in terms of J.B.S. Bach versus... Uh, Carl Philip Emanuel. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me onto the show, Colin. And um, I want to say, just in to, to preface the, uh, my remarks, is that um, talking about classical music, especially for non-musicians, um, can be rather daunting, especially if uh, the music doesn't have words like opera. Um, there are, of course, symphonies and sonatas and chamber music pieces. 
and um, as a professor of music at the Hart School and somebody who's done some adult education courses on uh, music appreciation, I find that one way of making uh, classical music uh, very visceral, literally visceral for um, listeners is to compare it to food. And one of the reasons is that the composers themselves did this. To give you an example, um, I want to start with um, a, a rather familiar name, Bach, but not Johann Sebastian Bach, his son, Carl Philipp Emanuel, who incidentally uh, celebrated in one form or another his 300th birthday last year. And um, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, besides being an extraordinary composer, was a very important writer on musical subjects. And um, around 1753, he wrote a treatise called Essay on the True Manner of Keyboard Playing which was a combination um, music theory and music practice book. And one of the issues that he uh, treated in this book was ornamentation. That is to say, taking a simple melody and instead of playing one note after the other, adorning it with little curly cues that we call trills or mordants and that sort of thing. And um, it turned out that uh, he was trained by his father, who was um, uh, one of the great representatives of Baroque music, which is a very highly ornate music. And as much as he admired his father's music, he said, I really can't follow that path. I want music that's a lot more direct, that speaks to the heart. That's actually a term, a phrase that he used. And um, if you read his uh, essay on uh, ornamentation, he writes the following. Above all things, a prodigal use of embellishments must be avoided. Regard them as spices which may ruin the best dish or gigaws which may deface the most perfect building. Now, what does that mean in musical terms? Well, uh, let's hear an example of highly ornate or highly spicy music. And this is the music of the generation that preceded him, music of his father, and even more so the music of the French Baroque. And if you think about, say, the architecture of Versailles, you think about the way the people dressed at Louis uh, XIV court with all their various jewels and and ornaments and so on, you can hear it in the music. We're going to hear just a little bit of a piece by uh, François Couperin, who was uh, probably the most important composer of Baroque keyboard music. And uh, this is the type of music that... um, Carl Philipp Manuel Bach wanted to get away with, which is just a little bit of a... Oh, so that's yeah. what you want to start with, the Cooperan? Cooperan, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that'll be, I think that's A3 in there. You got that? Okay, here we go. Yeah. Okay, now you hear that practically every single note had a little gigaw on it, a little bit of spice. Okay, now... C.P. Bach, when he was writing music, wanted music that was really direct, speaking from the heart. And this is his idea of of uh, expressive music. So this would be, I think, A2, Wolfie, we're going to hear yes. um, the sonata in A minor. A minor, slow movement of the A minor sonata. Okay. So that's not spicy. That's not spicy at all. Every, just one note after the other. And, right. and, uh, he's, and the pianist is singing from That's Glenn Gould, who liked to, uh, to sing when he was playing, as a matter of fact. Okay, so this is one example. Now, another way why this, ty- this type of approach to music, gastromusicology, I, as I call it, is a way that it can show connections between composers, very often from different periods. And I'd like to jump now to the music of Carl Philipp's father, Johann Sebastian Bach, and the music of a composer named Johannes Brahms, who was considered to be probably the foremost um, uh, symphonic composer of the late 19th century in Germany. 
Now, these two composers came from entirely different periods, but they had a lot in common. And, and um, I want to just read you a little story about Johann Sebastian Bach and Brahms uh, that kind of ties this up very nicely. Uh, this, was, this is one of the reminiscences of Brahms' friends. Once while dining out with friends, Brahms called to the waiter, Give us a good bottle of wine, but it must be your best. In a few minutes, the man returned with a bottle cradled in a basket, a venerable affair covered with spider webs. What sort is that? demanded Brahms. The waiter inclined himself obsequiously. It is a bottle of Brahms. But at once the master, tapping it and pushing it away, cried, Well then, give us a bottle of Bach. Well, what, does he, what did he mean by that? Well, lots of things. First thing is that Brahms was a very, very humble composer, and he was very historically conscious of the composers who preceded him, among them J.S. Bach. But more important, he, lived, he was born in 1833 and died 1897. He, he lived during most of the part of the 19th century. And just a few years before he was born, uh, another composer named Felix Mendelssohn had pretty much brought J.S. Bach's music to light because it had been pretty much in hibernation for the previous 80 years for reasons we won't go into here. But at that point, when, when uh, J.S. Bach's music was revealed to um, Europeans, especially the Germans, he became kind of a national hero, kind of an icon. And composers as different as Brahms, Wagner, Liszt, Schumann absolutely worshipped him, okay? So that's one thing. The second thing, which is probably more interesting and more important, is that um, Bach, Brahms was uh, involved in, in making Bach's music very popular. He was a choral conductor. He was probably the first conductor in about 100 years who performed Bach's cantatas publicly. He was a choral conductor in Vienna. And um, he also edited Bach's music for the new uh, complete edition of Bach's music. And more important, he took one of Bach's piece as a model for his last symphony, composed about 1885. Now let's listen. Let's listen to those two pieces. I want to talk a little bit. I, I want you to listen. So you listen. Do, you want to start with the Brahms? Or start with, with the Bach. Bach. Start with, with the Bach. Bach. Okay. So that, we have a jukebox in there, so yeah. put a quarter in there and play a one. Okay. Now. Just so we have time. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, if you listen to the rest of the piece, you would hear that this entire movement is, is, called, is based on a chaconne structure, which means that there's a rising bass line, which just keeps on repeating about 20 or 30 times, and the upper voices become more and more elaborate. It's almost like a blues type of structure, right? We have the same chord progression, just recycling, and the, uh, the soloists you know, draw melodies out of that. Well, in 1885, Brahms took that bass line, and he made it the melody, of a chaconne in the last movement of his fourth symphony. So we'll listen to that. All right. Yeah. B2 in the jukebox. Yeah. No, no wrong one. Sorry. Maybe B1. B1. Yes, that's it. Okay, and again, if you listen to the whole movement, you would hear just a series of variations using the same principle that Bach did. One other thing I should uh, call your attention to in terms of um, 
sort of culinary connections between these two composers is that if you read accounts of their their food ways, you'll find that they both had this uh, really strong desire for herring. They loved herring. Um, In my book, I talk about the fact that um, uh, Johann Sebastian's second wife, um, Maria Magdalena, uh, wrote that uh, her husband loved herring more than any other fish. And and the reason for that was that when he was a young boy, um, as students of music may recall, he took something like a 150-mile hike from a little town in central Germany to Hamburg to hear a great organist, and he sustained himself just by eating herring and herring heads. And Brahms became quite corpulent as his life went on. Oh, right? definitely, yes. Yeah. He had a lot, big, a lot of big, herring. He had a lot of herring. He had a lot too of herring. much herring, really. Too much herring, right. All right, we're going to, we need okay. to sort of grab a break here, but as we go into the break, um, you know, just to sort of, once again, embrace that idea of composers themselves using the language of food to, uh, to, talk, about their, um, to talk about their compositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got uh, a piece by Ligeti. This is a harpsichord piece called uh, Continuum, which he describes as chopping salami, right? Yeah. The, uh, well, the exact words It really sounds like ten knives yeah, chopping yeah. ten well, salami. It says the sound would have to be, would consist of innumerable slices of salami. Yeah. yeah. Uh, innumerable is the key word here. Yeah, we here go. we go. Back. This is our gastromusicology show. Oh, after this segment, we're going to take a short break for fundraising. Do, by the way, participate in the fundraising, particularly if you love our show. Helps our show if you, in fact, make a pledge during the pledge break. Then we're going to come back at the end. Uh, we're going to be talking about an un- kind of a linked idea, um, an unusual patent that uh, attempts to link the notes of the scale to the notes in food probably for the purpose of manipulating us to buy more Frito-Lay products. But anyway, that's uh, coming up. Ira Browser with me right now, Associate Professor of Music History at the Hart School. Uh, his book is Classical Cooks. It's about this very notion of uh, the linkage between food and the work of classical composers. Um, so, cla- you know, these composers, I mean, they did eat all kinds of different diets. Satie uh, ate white food. He had this whole idea that you should eat food that doesn't have any color in it, right? Yeah. And do you, do you see? Do you feel as though you can sense in the spareness of Satie that I mean? Do you feel like you can draw a straight line from that diet to that music? Oh, very much so. In fact, um, if you look at uh, Satie's uh, plainness, you might say his whiteness in his music, um, you can see it almost as a kind of uh, self-conscious reaction to this um, Wagnerism that you, that was sort of. Um, overtaking French music and composers. And I have a wonderful letter from him to uh, his friend Claude Debussy, which actually addresses that. He said, um, I explained, or actually a memoir he wrote, he said, I explained to Debussy the necessity for a Frenchman to disengage himself from the Wagnerian adventure, which does not correspond to our natural aspirations. Just a little footnote here. Um, most of the many of the uh, the French composers of the late nineteenth century uh, were uh, absolutely hypnotized by Wagner and made pilgrimage to pilgrimage to Bayreuth and so on to hear Wagner's music, and you can hear in Debussy's music in his opera, for example, Peleus and Melisande, a lot of Wagnerian overtones. But by the end of the nineteenth century, uh, I think a lot of the French composers were getting tired of this. As this um, this letter or this reminiscence expresses, I'll continue. He says. And I pointed out to him, pointed out to Debussy, that I was by no means anti-Wagnerian, but that it was necessary for us to have a music of our own, 
with no sauerkraut, if possible. Ah, no sauerkraut. So yeah. um, we're going to hear um, one of the gymnopedies. And, and so, but when, we're do, when we do that, think of going into Satie's uh, uh, refrigerator where you're going to find white stuff. You're going to find rice. I, th- I think he ate like crushed bone and he, there were like camphor some. Camphor and that yeah, sort of stuff. Camphor and weird things. Did yeah. all kinds of yeah. weird things yeah. to food to make it even more white. Yeah. Uh, and then like everybody else he drank too much, yeah. uh, died of cirrhosis. But he boiled his wine, right? He boiled yeah. the wine. Who knows why he did that? All right. Yeah. Yeah. So here's what you sound like. I mean, I love Satie, but here's what you sound like when you eat too much white food. <laughs> You know, Colin, we might contrast that with eating too much sauerkraut. Mm. And we could listen to the beginning of Wagner's uh, Prelude to Tristan, where practically every single note of the scale is fermented, or chromatic, as we say. All right, so yeah. here's Wagner, who, by the way, occasionally tried to be a vegetarian, but apparently wasn't very good at it. No, he, he, was always, he would eat, like, rabbits and stuff like that, right. and then he'd become a vegetarian again. All right. right. So we're going to hear the uh, yeah. Wagner. Oh, sorry. Beginning, beginning of... No, no, that's not, no, sorry. That's not it. All right. Oh, that, well, let's go to the beginning of it. Oh, I don't know if we have the beginning of it. Oh, we, we've sorry. got what we've got here. Okay. All okay. right. It's chromatic enough. <laughs> Okay. So, so Ira Brass, some of these composers yeah. loved food, and yeah. some of them are more indifferent to them. I mean, yeah. Rossini, not only does he have things named after him, actual dishes named after him, mm. but he was famously an enjoyer of food. Yeah. Stravinsky, famously right. a, a guy who really loved food, mm. right? Right. I mean, some of these guys are really mm. – I, I guess even we were talking this morning on the Where We Live about Virgil Thompson in, in, in your book. Mm-hmm. Virgil would, like, eat more than three meals a day, right? Right. <laughs> Um, so yeah. do you think that that sort of shows up is the, the sensuality that you, uh, you know, I mean, is, is the firebird uh, connected to, uh, to Stravinsky's love of fiery couscous? Well, it could be. I'm, sometimes, you know, you can't make direct connections like this. But um, I think um, there's um, in some cases when the composers actually do use uh, imagery and metaphors like, you know, like C.P. Bach, you know, talking about spice and so on, you can make a direct connection to this. But I would like to go back to... Uh, that little uh, that playlet that um, that Wolfie did at the very beginning, where she was talking about um, Beethoven's um, wife's use of food as an aphrodisiac. Um, there's an art. There's a section in my book where um, Wagner talks about food as direct inspiration for his composition um, Tristan and Isolde. Mm-hmm. And um, I won't read this here because it's rather lengthy. But he was um, writing a, a letter to. Um, Matilda von Wesendonck, who was the inspiration of, of Tristan and Isolde, and said that he got to a certain point in the opera where things just didn't click. He just he had sort of writer's block. But he said that um, he had some specials, Wiebach, um, this, this sort of dry German toast, delivered to his, uh, to his workplace. And he started eating. He said, he said, this is what freed all of my... Um, all of my compositional creativity, Svibach, Svibach, the savior of composers, that sort of thing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. are, are there instances where you can see a change in the in the in an in individual? I mean, we're talking about composers, kind of you know, over the course of their lives. Yeah. But within the course of a composer's life, are there times where the composer's diet changes and then the music changes? Oh yes, that's a very good question. Uh, we don't have any musical examples here for this, but I think the best example of that is Beethoven. 
because if you read the um, accounts of his friends, uh, his young friends, mm-hmm. um, they said that uh, all Beethoven ate was macaroni and cheese four or five times a day. You know, was, how can anybody survive on that? But Beethoven did. He was very poor when he came to Vienna in the early 1790s. But the longer he remained in Vienna, the more famous he became and the more affluent he became because his uh, students ended up being, say, members of the um, Austrian nobility, such as the Archduke Rudolf and so on. And when he became that prosperous, he started eating like um, the Austrian nobility, which in that time was eating meals that maybe had four, four or five courses with um, four or five different meat dishes. And we know about this because if you read Beethoven's conversation books, these are the books that he used towards the end of his life to communicate with people because he couldn't hear anybody. And uh, he has orders to the cooks where he uh, lists five or six different types of meat. And he says, no spices, which is kind of interesting because this sort of carries on the C.P.E. Bach tradition, which a composer whom whom Beethoven very much admired. And uh, sometimes when I teach string, I teach a string quartet class at the the Hart School. And I emphasize to students, because we read early and late string quartets of Beethoven, that the early string quartets are very, very peppy. Uh, they're very starchy, you know, like macaroni and cheese. And they're usually just in four movements. They're rather relatively succinct pieces. We look at the late string quartets. They very often have five, six, seven movements. You might think, you know, corresponding to the five or six courses, um, you know, in the diet of an Austrian nobleman. And uh, they're very, very dense. You know, you, they're, they're, you might say that they're like meat protein, you know, because the every single measure, you know, has some version of the theme which is being developed or permuted in some way. And... Um, I think that uh, there may be you know, a, a cause and effect there. Of course, we can't go back <laughs> and examine Beethoven's metabolism. But I think it's more than coincidental that, that this change in diet, among with other, along with other factors, really can explain to a certain extent this very radical change in, you know, in concept. I mean, uh, the interesting point, too, that a lot of these composers wound up eating food that wasn't natural for them. Chopin longed for the rest of his life for Polish food because he was living in all these fancier European capitals like Vienna where the cuisine was more sophisticated in a way. But give give me that old Polish country food I don't get anymore. Well, we've got enough time, I think, to make a contrast uh, that you make between uh, Debussy and and Ravel. Uh, So uh, Debussy, we'll start, is a more sort of continental Fancy. He's actually a cook, right? He actually yes, yes. Yeah. Debussy was a wonderful cook, and um, there are all sorts of accounts of his cooking. I'll just see if I can find one here. Um, let's see. Now. Here we go. Okay, uh, this is uh, from his friend Satie again. This Satie is this is his re- remembrance of uh, or uh, uh, memoir of. of Meals with Debussy. He said, among my memories as a guest, I cannot forget uh, the delightful lunches I had over several years with him when he was living on the Rue Cardinet. Eggs and lamb cutlets were the center of these friendly occasions. But what eggs and what cutlets? I'm still licking my cheeks on the inside, as you can guess. Debussy, who prepared these eggs and cutlets himself, had the secret uh, of the uh, of the, had the secret of these of this preparation. The whole ensemble was washed down with delicious white Bordeaux, whose effects were touching, and so on. Well, and let's, hear, let's hear, just to sort of work that out a little bit, yeah. let's hear uh, Debussy's from uh, Trois Nocturnes, hmm. uh, one, one segment from that. Okay.
Okay. Well, you know, people sometimes have trouble distinguishing him from a composer named Maurice Ravel, who lived about the same time. Uh, these two are, are commonly known as Impressionist composers, but they uh, inhabited entirely different worlds despite certain superficial similarities. And um, there's a wonderful reminiscence of Ravel as a cook by a friend uh, named Ricardo Vignes. And he says, um, Debussy and Ravel um, were both Sybarites and devoted gourmets. Debussy was perhaps uh, the less voracious of the two, whereas Ravel distinguished himself by consuming alarming doses of pickles, pepper, mustard, and other stimulating condiments, which he was able to stomach, and by his marked preference for exotic and oriental dishes. And what I like to tell people is that uh, when you listen to Ravel's music, as opposed to what we just heard before, uh, the spiciness, the dissonance is a lot more pronounced. And a good example of that is a piece called Alvarado del Grazioso. It's It's an orchestra piece. All right, so before we play that, let me just say we'll be heading uh, from there probably into some fundraising. Uh, We've been talking to Ira Brous. His book is Classical Cooks. And um, so, again, it sounds a little bit like, you know, if you're going to Paris now, um, Debussy eats on the right bank and Ravel eats on the left bank. Yeah, that's it goes to the ethnic restaurants in the Latin Quarter. Exactly. Has those uh, fiery, spicy things. And and anyway, so coming up after this, and please do participate in the fundraising. It's very good, very helpful for our show. We'll be talking about a different kind of gastromusicology, the actual attempt in modernity to link notes of the scale to foods that we eat, probably for the purpose of getting us to either enjoy those foods a lot more or ideally getting us to buy those foods a lot more. So anyway, we're going to end this segment with the spicy uh, left bank Ravel. Domino's? Yeah, I'd like a medium cheeseburger stuffed crust pizza and Mozart's Piano Concerto number 18 in B-flat major, Kirkle 456. And can you hold the mozzarella and the minor key second movement? Thank you. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by the Flying Burrito Brothers. For show pages, articles, and MP3s of the Faith Middleton Show staff performing Sweet for Caramelized Onions and Truffle Oil in B minor, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the changing face of Jewish identity. And now, back to Colin. For our final installment here in this episode of Gastromusicology, Oh, I mean, obviously, you know, we'd have to have Mark Abrams uh, here for this. Mark Abrams is the uh, editor of the Annals of Improbable Research. He's the organizer, and I believe the MC of the Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, his books include Why Chickens Prefer Beautiful Humans and Sex as a Heap of Malfunctioning Rubble. I just want to say, Mark, that in the 1980s, I wrote a book called Swimming Chickens and Other Half-Breasted Accounts of the Animal World and a book called Lose Weight Through Great Sex with Celebrities. So I My feel brother. as— I feel like we are blood brothers, really. Yeah. We have both written books that have chickens and sex. 
uh, in the titles. That seems to be the center of the universe at certain times. Everything is a chicken. I feel it's mildly unfair to have you on this show today because I'm really going to be asking you to explain research for which you should bear no responsibility. Oh, I bear no responsibility for almost anything I talk about. (laughs) I talk about other people's things. You know, when I thought about it a little more, I thought, yes, there's no reason to apologize for this. That's kind of what (laughs) Mark does. But it's a kind thought. Yeah. Thank you for that. But I am going to oblige you to explain something which I find inexplicable, and you may not be able to explain it either because it's not your research. But you did write about this, uh, this patent, which involves corn chips, song, and the Internet. This is a method for sequencing flavors with an auditory phrase. Let me sketch out my absolutely spotty and space-filled understanding of this, and then you can ideally enlarge it. So it seems to me what we're talking about here is somebody uh, seeking a patent in order to marry what we sometimes refer to as flavor notes, but I don't think we ever meant them as musical notations before, but the, you know, the tastes of cilantro or tomatillo or salt or whatever, and actual notes as in musical notes in a scale, that it might be possible somehow to link the experience of eating certain kinds of food, not just in a Pavlovian way, but in a way that really, in fact, reflected the similarity between food flavors or food eating experiences and listening to music. How, how close am I coming to your uh, understanding of this? That's my understanding of it, too. That's, that's pretty much the way that the inventor describes it. And the inventor didn't just seek a patent, but success was his or hers in uh, year 2011, U.S. patent number 794311. I'm saying his or her because it's a name not familiar to me. The inventor is named Epen George. First name Epen is spelled E-A-P-E-N. Do you have any experience with that? Do you I have no it? experience with Epen. So Mr. or Ms. George got this uh, patent um, and assigned the rights to it to the Frito-Lay Corporation of North America. So we know right away that putatively, anyway, the people who might be most interested in exploit. I mean, and I think this is a patent that is meant to a certain degree to exploit us, right? To I mean, maybe it's a patent meant to enhance our enjoyment of Frito Lay products. Let's go with that benign explanation first, and then we can go with the sinister one afterwards. So the benign explanation, I'm assuming, Mark, would be that I would buy some Frito-Lay product and some Doritos or some this or some that. And the way that I understand it, I think from your coverage, is there might even be a little barcode thing on the bag where I could point my phone and if I had the right app or something like that, it would even tell me the music that I was going to fuse with my Frito-Lay consuming experience. That's pretty much what they describe in this patent. Now, the, I don't know how often you see patents, or when I'm saying you, I mean you, whoever is listening, as well as you, who, to whom I am speaking directly, and you are speaking back to me. But these patents are long and detailed, and they tend to vary as you, if you read through them, between being perfectly clear and lucid and completely full of jargon and and intentionally mystifying stuff because they don't want competitors to quite be able to get all the details. And in this thing, they describe what you described. They produced at least one commercial that apparently got on the air. It's it's on YouTube. You can look it up. And it's the singing group, the hip-hop group, the Black Eyed Peas, sampling some Doritos while some music plays that's supposed to be enhancing, I guess would be the word, the so-called flavor notes. In the patent, they do talk about that dual uh, definition, uh, that two-sided use of the word note, 
musical note, of course, everybody knows. But here they describe at quite some length how a flavor note to flavor professionals, the people who try to concoct the flavors that are going to be in foods that will be sold, it can be something distinctive. And they're trying in this to um, commercially marry these two different definitions of flavor. So, yeah, the patent says music, such as can be expressed in an auditory phrase, is a powerful part of a human's sensory experience, triggering emotions, feelings, and the recall of emotion, of memories. And yet no effort has been made, and here lies the shame, that's my editorial comment, no effort has been made to correlate and link a tasting experience with a relevant musical sequence, such that a f- the flavor notes of a food product complement the musical aspects of an auditory phrase. Consequently, a need exists for sequencing the flavor notes of a food with corresponding auditory experience. So, you caught that phrase, too. A need a, exists. A, need exists. <laughs> a, a crying to me, need. To me, that is the, the um, most moving, most musical bit of the patent, that phrase, a need exists. You can almost hear it singing off the page, not just written on the page. Right. I think, Mark, when you and I think about it, when we think about moments where, where we felt a vague, unspecified emptiness in our lives. We now know what that emptiness was. Yeah, it's that we didn't see the Doritos commercial, <laughs> and 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 more than that, we didn't hear it while we were seeing it. Well, can I can I read you a couple of phrases? Yes, from this please patent? do. It's uh, highly intellectual. Let's say, it says the flavor produced by coconut or cheese lingers much longer than a volatile oil compound, thus providing what's analogous to a, a base note of long duration. Ginger can be considered a transition flavor that provides a clear demarcation between one flavor and another, or a transition note. And it goes on to kind of bounce back and forth between using this word note as if it's talking about little bits of flavor that gradually or suddenly hit your mouth and the notes that you're hearing from the instruments. It's a almost psychedelic experience reading this. So, Mark Abrams, when we think about that uh, incredible gulf, that um, that vacuum in our lives, that really amounted to do not simply the absence of the proper Doritos commercial, but really as we sit down to our meals of coconut and cheese and ginger, we had until now no idea what music we might put on. If we went over to our music library, what would we put on that would enhance and complement this experience? We just didn't know. You know, I mean, we were yeah, really... We were, we were ignorant. We yeah. were beasts. We were blundering around in the dark. So, I mean, this patent hole is offering to instruct us to, in fact, develop some kind of guidelines. But obviously these wouldn't be guidelines because it's a patent that would be necessarily shared with any yokel to do as he or she pleases. The, the initial plan is to share this with Frito-Lay and then have us get an app and then we yeah. point it to the bag it's, and all this stuff. It's possible that the inventor, Epen George, mm. was and is an employee of Frito-Lay. That's a pretty typical thing in these patents that the, the inventor will be listed as a person, but the rights to it are for for the company that the person works for. I'm not sure on that. And also reading this, there are a couple of things. One is sometimes these patents are slightly misleading. They want to have enough information that the rights to it are protected for the inventor, but it's misleading in a way that somebody else, some competitor, might try to, to do this thing but end up with disaster because they couldn't quite get the gist of it. The other thing is when you read this, you get the invention that Epen George – even he or she, is the first and only person to do this kind of thing. And that's not so. There are a bunch of other food scientists, they usually call themselves in different parts of the world, who've been doing similar things for a long time. 
One of them I'm pretty familiar with uh, is a, a professor at Oxford University in England named Charles Spence. He has been doing experiments for years of trying to marry together all the different senses and see what happens when you say uh, one of his famous experiments is to have somebody take one single bite of a potato chip while listening to the sound of that bite passing through some electronics and being modified so that the high frequency notes are removed or extra low frequency <laughs> notes are added or things to try to see if you if you change the sound of what you're hearing as you bite does that drastically change what you think you're tasting and what they found was that was true they could with a potato chip they found that by doing this they could completely manipulate whether somebody thought that that potato chip was fresh and crisp or old and soggy just by changing the sound of it. Yeah, and I think this is probably especially true for the chip family of products. I mean, it might not be quite as true for broccoli or something, but I mean, it, it makes a certain amount of sense. Maybe fresh broccoli, though. Could be, could be. Uh, yeah, al dente. Well, or crispy fried broccoli. Kind there, of thing. there you go. The possibilities are endless. Then the question becomes, you know, as we ask from time to time in Spider-Man comics and elsewhere, what if this information were to fall into the wrong hands? Although it could be argued, since, ears. since Frito-Lay already has it, that it is in the wrong hands. But setting that aside for a moment, it's one thing, obviously, to try to figure out what the actual musical notes are that correspond to flavor notes. So let's decide that eating a cool ranch Dorito chip, if there is such a thing, that, you know, experiencing the lime and the cilantro and the whatever else there is, that really we're experiencing a musical pattern that goes da ba 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 now we're eating more and more chips. ba 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 So that's fine. I have a feeling you didn't pick those notes at random. Well, I just, I picked, I picked notes that everybody would know, all right? So now we know that maybe while we're eating these chips, we'll enjoy them even more, we'll intensify the experience if we listen to the soundtrack to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or whatever that is. So that's great. But then what Dorito, what Frito-Lay really wants, Mark, I would think, would be in, under certain circumstances, like if we're, you know, walking into a convenience store to play that music, and then we walk out with six bags of this stuff. It could. Of course, it's always or often dangerous to try to uh, assume you know what's in the mind of another person, especially if that person is a corporation. Right. And yeah, give me an as example. You were, as you were just saying what you were saying, I was looking at the patent, and there's a, a little passage in there that sounds almost like what you were saying. It's, it's becoming eerie how much you're, <laughs> you're understanding what they're about. It says in the patent, the person composing the auditory phrase can be in one embodiment of the patent, professional musician or composer. Alternatively, the auditory phrase can be composed by an amateur, sharing the auditory phrases composed for specific products with the general public enhances the tasting experience for the food product involved. Well, that also sounds like sort of user-generated content. Like, ultimately, their goal is to get us to create content that can be used to manipulate us, right? That we'll post so up you're suggesting this is really about getting us to do their marketing for them. Totally, and that's what they'll do. They'll have a contest connected to the Super Bowl saying, write the best song that approximates your experience of eating Cool Ranch Doritos, and the winner will get to, I don't know, go shake hands with Peyton Manning or something. And basically what will happen is one of us, one of us members of the Common Rock, will be writing music that can be used to manipulate the human race. 
and probably not being paid any royalties. No, probably not. I mean, I have a very dark vision of the world, so feel I free. Can, I can see and almost yeah. taste that. <laughs> yeah. Feel, feel free to correct me. Feel free to say, oh, no, it, I'm sure it's not. No, I mean, no, I'm, I, I feel I'm getting a good education here talking right. with you. I'm, I'm uh, grateful for this opportunity. Yeah. Always inspect the dice is what I say. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that we contacted you because of your writing about this particular study. And, and we've been doing this show about gastromusicology where we're talking about the relationship between music and food, and, and in our prior segments, we've talked a little bit about the food that great composers ate and how it may have actually changed the way that they composed. Well, in and, some cases, it killed them. Or killed them. That's, that's the other choice. And by the way, we've been talking to Mark Abrams here. He is the editor of the Annals of Improbable Research and the organi- organizer of the Ig Nobel Prizes and is the author of books that have the titles uh, involving both sex and chickens, a distinction that we shared together. Uh, as we end today, we will play that Black Eyed Peas Doritos commercial, and everybody will get up from wherever they're sitting and go and get Doritos because the era of thought control has begun. Yes? Damn, you're making me hungry now. All right. Let's uh, end then with the Black Eyed Peas. Thanks very much, Mark Abrams. Thanks to Lydia Brown and Kyone Wolf. And here we go. Get ready to crunch. Good to see you. Are you ready for the flavor trip, Peas? I'm going to take you through a flavor journey. In the past, you get one flavor on a chip. Now, you get four notes coming, one after the other, that take you through this melody in the mouth. Are you ready for a flavor trip? Are you ready? Let's go. Ready. Let's go. You'll be tasting distinctively four notes, one after the other. You are listening to the taste, and you're tasting the music. Same chip, man. Came with some crazy uh, little flipperies on my taste buds. <coughs> Garçon, what's in this pasta fajoule? Garlic, <coughs> onion, <coughs> carrot, tomatoes, <coughs> canelli beans, and Haydn's Cello Concerto Number no. Four in D. You fool! Don't you realize everybody is allergic to Haydn? <coughs> 